welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, we are recording for Never Been Kissed. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, episode number 90, as we inch ever so slowly. Well, <laughs> I, don't know I was that. about to say, <laughs> it, it, I can't believe we've done 90 episodes. That's just numeric, not including our bonus episodes, anything like that. But as we approach, encroach on episode 100. We can see it in the distance. It's far off. I mean, not that far off, really. If we if we keep up to the schedule, if we stick to the schedule, it'll be in January, which is what. So I have half that long to watch all the MCU bullshit. Yeah, yeah. If you pace yourself, you do five MCU movies a month. <laughs> you'll be right, right on Avengers Endgame by the time we do our, uh, our episode one hundred. Good God, we are here for episode number ninety to visit the nineteen ninety nine. Uh, what is this classified as? A romantic comedy. Okay. So just, is it a teen comedy? No. I, I was curious if it was classified as coming of age, but she's she already of come age. of age and she's just re-coming of age. Yes. Uh, Never Been Kissed, starring Drew Barrymore, directed by Raja uh, Gosnell. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing last name, but very popular uh, amongst our age bracket. And kind of surprising that we haven't really tackled a uh, Barrymore vehicle thus far in our run of podcasts. She's kind of a millennial queen. That's very true. Uh, several returns, triumphant returns to the podcast. We'll get into that here uh, shortly. Uh, but Never Been Kissed, released in 1999 with Drew Barrymore, is neither on the fresh nor rotten side of the equation, uh, technically speaking, as this is episode number 90. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, first allow me to break down what we do. Uh, as we like to say, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, find a movie on Rotten Tomato that is ranked very highly or very low and make a case for it versus the other. Just so, here to point out the inherent, <laughs> uh, inherent flaw with Rotten Tomatoes, or at least the problem with the way people perceive it yeah so if it's if it's fresh we talk about it as if it was rotten if it's rotten we talk about it as if it was fresh and then on the second half of the show real talk it's we where tell you, we, tell we, you how we, we, really feel. we dish out the goods we tell you how we really feel Being, unless <laughs> unless we end on a uh, a zero so for episode 10 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 and now episode number 90 we find a movie that is somewhere in the middle somewhere in the the gray area where, where exactly is uh never 56 percent 56 mm -hmm. this is the 50s yeah uh, walter Mitty was our last one that was 51 50, 50 yeah it was dot, somewhere dead in the middle yeah 
uh, trying to think of what else we've done for this. The A team, natural born killers, a lot of things that this is 40. Yeah. Range in the 40 to 60% range. So, uh, one of us will be uh, making a case for it. The other one will be what's the opposite of singing its praises. Trashing it, <laughs> throwing it under the bus, hollering its flaws. Uh, being that with Walter Mitty, I went on the offensive and you were on the defensive. I'll take the defense position for Never Been Kissed. And I'm going to be mean to Drew Barrymore. Like everyone else in this movie was. <laughs> I'm so. going to be the one coming up with the, with the ugly nickname. <laughs> so Never Been Kissed, 56%. That means there was a... A variable mixed bag of reviews. Right. So usually we would do a bunch of either fresh quotes or rotten quotes, depending on what the movie is. But since it's it's a gray area, I'm going to alternate them. So Nell Minow from Common Sense Media says, A genuinely sweet and romantic story for teens. And for adults that like teens, mm -hmm. I would say. Yep. Liam Lacey from Globe and Mail says, Drew Barrymore has been well cast as someone who doesn't act her age. That's rotten, in case you can tell. That's supposed to be shade. Yeah, that's a Drew really Barrymore. weird <laughs> weird flex. Uh, Justine Elias from The Village Voice says, A lively tribute to the awkwardness and power of adolescent girlhood. But then Bill Chambers from Film Freak Central says, Do 90s filmmakers forget what it was like to be a teenager and call upon Saved by the Bell reruns for a refresher course? Okay. He's one of those people that call uh, his fellow classmates things like Josie Grossi and... <laughs> um, Frank the Tank. <laughs> yes. Uh... Susan Stark from Detroit News says, Barrymore's the reason to see it, and the reason it will be widely enjoyed. She wasn't wrong, I guess. If you like it, you like it because of Drew Barrymore. Oh, yeah. It's it's an all-or-nothing <laughs> affair with this. And finally, Dwayne Dudek from Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says, Barrymore's acting looks disorganized and undisciplined. Like John Travolta in Wild Hogs. <laughs> No, it doesn't have to just be Drew Barrymore. If you're a completionist and you own this just because it was James Franco's film debut. Yes. One line, maybe two lines. So, Never Been Kissed centers around, I was going to say our titular character, <laughs> centers around <laughs> our, main Josie Never. <laughs> our main character, uh, Drew Barrymore, who plays Josie Geller, who's a 25-year-old copy editor and... Um, Aspiring uh, reporter. So this is 1999. Correct. Right. Is she related to the Gellers from Friends? <laughs> uh, that's that. That would get really weird. Then you start like the triangle of uh, or the web rather of David Arquette's involvement and how he was married to oh, Monica God. Geller. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not pull on that thread. <laughs> uh, we are in Chicago. She works for the Chicago Sun Times and is. I wouldn't say a mess of a person, but definitely a uh, an individual. There's she stands no, out. There's no S.O. in her life, and she doesn't look like, you know, she's putting herself out there. And uh, a bit of a recluse, I guess, would probably be a good one. Um, just to make the obvious, uh, get it out of the way, the Chicago Sun-Times, no Roger Ebert cameo. <laughs> Already, I'm out of the movie. I checked out. If you, why not come up with just... A random Chicago newspaper that's either not as well known or that is completely fictional. So I can really just and they reference multiple the times the Tribune about how they're getting <laughs> scooped by the Tribune. This is like the the Drew Barrymore version of the Post. Yes, the the Daily Planet with Drew Barrymore. 
man, speaking of Daily Planet, just because you brought it up, and it's it's, it's got to be one of my points anyway. Uh, so her her boss, the what would he be? What would John C. Riley be? Yeah, Gus. Is he the editor in chief, or is that is that Gary? Uh, Gary uh, Marshall is editor in chief. So what is what is Gus? What is John C. Riley? Just the editor? I. I'm fucking failing my journalism degree right now, but not knowing his official title, but he's in between Gary Ross. Mm-hmm. No, not Gary Ross. Gary Marshall. Gary, Ro- yes. Gary Ross was off doing better things. <laughs> Gary Ross was doing Pleasantville, but yeah, between Gary Marshall, who's the the boss of everybody, and mm-hmm. then there's John C. Riley, who's the boss of Drew Barrymore and other people, um, and he is trying. I'll give him this. He's trying. But you can tell why he was not cast as uh, Perry White in any of the multiple Superman reboots, remakes, refranchises. Uh, he's just, I don't buy him. I just see him. It, it, I, I know this is just, it happens every time we do one of these old movies. Mm-hmm. And the actors have been recontextualized by <laughs> by life. You can't see John C. Riley now and not see the goofy guy from Step Brothers. Dewey Cox. Dewey Cox. He even Holmes <laughs> as of just last year. I just can't take him seriously as some guy that's supposed to be telling Drew Barrymore what's what. Or anybody in that office. So, counterpoint, the Chicago Sun-Times might as well be called Hollywood Boulevard with the- <laughs> The red carpet that is just lining the floors of this office building with the aforementioned John C. Riley. We also have uh, would have been top of the world Molly Shannon at this point in time. Alan Covert. This movie's so good they don't even give him a line. He's just hanging out in the background. <laughs> Octavia Spencer is there. Uh, Gary Marshall, as we mentioned, roaming about. I mean, just a, a, a cornucopia of Academy Award nominees. I think that they could only afford to have them on screen. It's like season four of Arrested Development. They couldn't afford to have them all on the same set uh, for the entire shoot. So there was one day where they had them all at the same time in the same place. And that was when they recorded you know, the whole group watching prom. It was during a, a lunar eclipse and they only had <laughs> X amount of time to shoot it. But then you will notice Octavia Spencer is never present when Gary Marshall is there. And Gary Marshall is never around when the that kid from That Thing You Do is around. So I think that there was just, yes, they got a decent cast, but they couldn't keep it together because probably it was all favors. It's just, can you walk in and just, just read this. Gary Marshall's reading from cue cards. I'm trying to, which production studio released this movie? 20th Century Fox. Everyone just called in favors at Fox. <laughs> like, <laughs> Gary Marshall, do you want? What was Gary Marshall doing uh, around the 90s? Was he already on his like New Year's Day, Mother's Day? Not yet, no. He hadn't gotten into the holidays yet? This was 99, though, so this is... Uh, Weinstein was in the process of politicking all throughout Hollywood for his Oscar. And so 20th Century Fox is like, they called in the big guns. They said, <laughs> Covert, we need you on set tomorrow. Uh, the editor-in-chief, Gary Marshall, is uh, an erratic, to say the least, uh, leader and goes on some random tangent about... Uh, his grandson, I believe it was, or maybe even just his son. It didn't make any sense. It has to be his grandson. Yeah. Because he leads him to teenagers. That's right. That's right. And he doesn't understand what they're doing or doesn't know anything about the teens of today. So he wants someone to go undercover. He just kind of points at Drew Barrymore and like, you, you will do it. You will go undercover at this local high school and you'll find out what makes these kids tick these days. I mean, his his criteria to pick who goes is just 
who looks the closest to a teenager, mm-hmm. obviously he's not going to send John C. Riley because that ship has sailed. <laughs> not going to send Alan Covert. <laughs> no, but I would be more likely to buy uh, the guy from that thing you do. Uh, which, if you if you have seen that thing you do, I'm referring not to any of the Oneaters, but <laughs> the guy that shows up and it's uh, not their first Giovanni fan. Ribisi. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's no. our fan. It's our fan. Yeah, that guy is here. That's that's how desperate they were to fill the the. The Daily, I was gonna say the Daily Planet, the Chicago <laughs> sometimes with people. They just put that guy on on a bigger part. Um, but anyway, that guy I could have bought maybe as a high school student about as much as I buy Drew Barrymore as a high school student. Except that Gary Marshall seems to have this meta knowledge of knowing that he is part of a movie. Therefore, this high school is gonna be populated by twenty somethings. <laughs> <laughs> so Drew Barrymore, even though she should stand out, she doesn't stand out. She would look like a junior high schooler <laughs> if this was like Greece, if we had Sonny and Duty in there. Um, so she actually gets really excited at the idea of going back to high school, and immediately Molly Shannon and um, Gus, her editor John C. Riley, are like, "Don't worry, we'll get someone else to do this." No one really thinks she can do it, so she knows a lot's riding on this, not just professionally, but as it comes to find out personally. As her first go through high school didn't go exactly the way she uh, would have liked. The first person she goes and tells of her uh, new assignment is her brother making his triumphant, indeed triumphant, return to the Contrarians. Uh, the former WCW World Heavyweight Champion, David Arquette. The brother of Josie, Rob Geller. Yeah, so... In it's... all his incomparable 90s glory. So this was a year before... He won the heavyweight championship of the world. And this would have been a year, two years after Scream 2. Where is uh, uh, the wrestling movie? Ready to Rumble? Ready to Rumble. Where is- this would come out uh, almost exactly a year later. Because this was April 9th, 1999 was the release of this. And uh, Ready to Rumble. And if I'm right about this, I'm going to be very sad. But I think it was <laughs> uh, April 20th, 2000 when um, it came out. 420, it would be. Oh, thank God I was wrong. It was <laughs> it was April 7th of 2000, so 363 days uh, after. You have 13 days of dignity. <laughs> I've got two weeks to salvage. Um, it's weird because, once again, we go to just what happens when you watch, you experience an actor's filmography out of order. Uh I just can't. <laughs> David Arquette's well, yeah. bell curve of a career. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've experienced him as a leading man. Uh, I mean, he is the guy. Even with Scott Kahn there, he's Arquette's the one that's carrying ready to rumble. And here, he's just playing second fiddle to Drew Barrymore, and it feels wrong. It, it just... I'm used to David Arquette as a as a force that takes a story and just runs with it. And here, it takes the movie half its runtime to really make him part of, of the plot. In the meantime, he's just there kind of so that Drew Barrymore can have somebody to talk to. And it was it just felt like a waste of Arquette. I always forget Scream was 96. For some reason, Scream to me was a, always felt like a late 90s franchise. Here nor there. Arquette is here to be David Arquette. Now, 
he and Drew Barrymore, you wouldn't really think it. That's not really a pairing, you know, that it's made in some, you know, agent boardroom somewhere in the, the high hills of Hollywood. This is just kind of a buckshot approach. And, well, let's see what the fuck happens. Surprisingly enough, their chemistry is very viable. And uh, I do believe uh, the brother-sister dynamic between them until there's a really weird part later in the movie. <laughs> well, this movie, the longer it goes on, the weirder it gets. The weirder and uh, less dignified things become. <laughs> I my main complaint with this movie is actually that it doesn't go as dark and as twisted as it should have gone. If if this movie had gone full on von Trier on us, then it would have been memorable. But here it's just so it just stops before it it gets truly interesting and instead it just gets gross. David Arquette reminds Josie of high school and that it fucking sucked for her and reminds her of the nickname Josie Grossy. That was bequeathed upon her by the student body of graduating class of 1990, 1991, I believe it was. Yeah, we get these really weird flashbacks, but especially on the first one, it looks like she went to a segregated high school. <laughs> it's just surrounded by white people, just these white little assholes <laughs> picking on her. Uh, you can see the, the, the change when she goes to the high school at present day. Yes, and sadly enough, this movie was released a little over a week before Columbine, and so... A way to bring the mood down. I was going to say, like, uh, because I just realized that the joke about metal detectors being in high schools probably didn't play so good when this movie came out. Um, She gets to school, and it's still, you know, she thinks that she knows what kids are into and what's hip, and it's not the case. The popular kids still will have none of it. Uh, things have not changed all that much though for her as she's kind of a social outcast. There's still the really pretty boy that she fawns over when it was, uh, her first go, it was Billy. And now the gentleman's name is Guy. I want to say it was the name of the, the You're guy. thinking of Gus. <laughs> that was me when John C. <laughs> Riley came on screen, just swoon. Um, I don't know. I I think that the 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 way that guy Drew Perkins, Moore, yes, is the oh, so he is, was guy is the pretty boy. Yeah. I just thought they were calling him. Hey, guy. I said like, hey man, come over. I I just my problem with Drew Barrymore here is that she is overplaying the dorkiness. She is even more awkward when she's it's playing just her, a teenager. Man. <laughs> no, because so she's kind of a dork in her adult life. Mm-hmm. In the in the paper, she's already kind of an outcast. Uh. But she just dials it up to 11 when she goes to school to the point where the performance from Drew Barrymore, not from Josie, from the actress Drew Barrymore, just seems mean-spirited towards geeky kids. You know, it's like Drew Barrymore went in not to create a geeky character that would be endearing and and sympathetic, empathetic towards nerds everywhere, outcasts everywhere. But instead, she goes in and she creates this caricature that it's almost like making fun of of geeks everywhere you know the person that walks the line perfectly is uh the the second helen hunt that never was uh lily zobieski okay she plays a nerd that is nerdy but she still behaves like a human being so lily aldous beat me a little bit to it is the first person to kind of extend an olive branch and befriend um josie after she sees uh She's struggling to fit in. She's a new kid. Uh, she invites her to join the Denominators, which is their mathletes group. She kind of, they just hit it off. They become friends right away. Is that what happens in 
in American high school or what used to happen? I don't know. I went to an alternative learning center for you high school. You guys didn't have groups. You didn't have titles. Oh, yeah, we did. And, but like None of the cliques have their own t-shirts. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no, no. You were not like the WrestleManiacs? Oh, God. No. May surprise you. I was I was the only person that really liked wrestling in my school. It wasn't as easy, you know. It wasn't as widely accepted <laughs> across the. Uh, you were the pop Josie culture Grossi? lexicon. Oh yeah, yeah. I was the uh, Josie Grossi of. How many the eggs did they throw at you on prom night? Man, I was popular. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, we skipped over the the popular girls uh, staking her claim as head popular girl. This is the incomparable Jessica Alba. Is she the head uh, popular girl? Uh, I thought that uh, Shelton girl. Oh, boy, yes. I mean, in our eyes. <laughs> I think they're all competing for numero uno, but I think she is the it's true It's not like a Mean Ichiban. Girls. In Mean Girls, you have a very... There was like 30 seconds in this movie where I was like, wait, is this Mean Girls? <laughs> Marley Sheldon is the uh, one of the other popular girls. And is it Jordan Ladd? So, three young, virile women. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Jessica Alba, who would have been not even 18 when this movie was being made. So she was probably the one that in real life Michael Varden was <laughs> <laughs> taking on the first wheel. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Alba, who might as well be Damn playing. Damn it, now I can't talk about how hot she is in this movie. <laughs> and you can talk about how hot she is right now. Yes. Or no, it's like um, uh, Emma Watson. Where it's like, the, you could tell that she was going to grow up to be a very uh, good-looking lady. Yeah, that kind of statement doesn't fly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Alba, in this movie, one, plays the role of the stuck-up popular girl very well, and two, is so hot in a fashion <laughs> that was only acceptable for, like, two years. Like, between... Was that a thing with, like, the big, bright neon colors and poofy hair and shit that existed in 98, 99? Did that exist in Peru? It, no, in movies, I was gonna okay. say. <laughs> Did it exist in the States? Yes. Oh, okay. I always assumed that movies were just creating Again, a, a hyper-reality. For, like... I call that like the Dreamcast era, like because uh, for as long as the Dreamcast was acceptable, that fashion was acceptable. <laughs> uh, Jessica Alba might as well be playing the Invisible Woman again in this movie because she is barely there. It's it's not stunt casting if I can't tell what the stunt is. <laughs> The same thing happens with James Franco here. It, it's just, why do you get these big, charismatic, attractive people and then bury them in the background? Both Jessica Alba and James Franco have aged maybe 40 days since this movie came out. So props to both of them. That was a deal with the devil they had to make. <laughs> you will star. You will be part of Never Being Kissed. And I will grant you eternal youth. <laughs> Sam Coulson, the uh, English teacher, Shakespearean teacher. Uh, what's his name? Michael Varton. Michael Varton. Vaughn from Alias, for who anybody who watched Alias. Becomes the resident creep of this movie. Uh, <laughs> it's the truth. Is uh, He's the teacher we get to know most. Uh, he becomes right away... He just can tell by the way that Josie speaks and broaches a subject of writing. He says, are you sure you're 17? And then the camera. He asks, he asks every female student. The camera lingers on the shot a bit too long and he like bites his bottom lip while he's looking at her. It's a bit there is, much. There is a shot at the prom where he actually bites his lower lip. <laughs> uh, 
and that I have in my notes here, we've already mentioned this like fucking eight times, but a wild James Franco appears and Julio and I both go, eh? <laughs> is that James Franco? Uh, Josie begins learning more about the interactions of the school, but this is while she's friending uh, Lily and kind of losing sight of what she's there to do. The Tribune scoops them and um, writes a story on the court which uh, which is an old rundown drive-in movie theater that kids go to do drugs and drink at. So you would think day. there's bigger stories in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. John C. Riley gets mad about this, like he just got scooped on uh, on the Kennedy assassination or something. It's just it's buried <laughs> in the middle of the newspaper. <laughs> it's like Tribune broke that fucking Bin Laden. We got him, <laughs> and they're running a story on fucking the pumpkin patch. Exclusive. Teenagers like to party. <laughs> it, but the one thing that I, I'm on... Our, and also, uh, the Tribune, though, this is where they fucked up, because they uh, the Tribune's posting a picture of, like, Jessica Alba and all these underage girls drinking, <laughs> likely without any, like, uh, waivers signed or anything like that, so they could just turn that shit around. The real Tribune story... Tribune <laughs> posts racy pictures <laughs> for, from teacher Sam Colton's personal collection. <laughs> Um, well, but what I was going to say is John C. Riley is not wrong in one thing, and it's one of the big flaws in the movie. Drew Barrymore is not doing anything. No. She, she's just hanging out. No. He – it's not his fault for not seeing this because he's a fucking professional. <laughs> but she was just basically wanting another go at high school, and she's just going <laughs> to tread water and bite her time and see what happens. And he just tells her, you need to be cool. You need to figure out how to do this. So she's – Determined to try to figure it out. She tries to befriend these people and they still just will have none of it. Uh, she sees through them, but she realizes this is what she has to chase. So she's going to do what she can. She blows off something with Lily to go to some club to watch a band play of some sort. She keeps having these uh, on a school night, no less. This, these PTSD flashbacks to her original high school life, which are just horrendous it's like a horror movie got intercut with uh with this supposedly wholesome uh romantic comedy and it's just why what's his carry seem light so josie goes to this cool kids club she's trying to fit in with the cool kids she hears them say they're gonna go watch a band play or some shit she goes there sits with some uh rastafari as she calls them some rastafarian gentlemen uh they pass her a pot brownie she partakes Gets all of the good THC in her and just starts dancing and making a fool of herself. I mean, not that she wasn't doing that before. No. In, in, and now it, this is all being transmitted via camera because it's been a while. It's been a while since we'd seen a, a black person in the movie. So Octavia Spencer, long gone. She'll come back towards the end, but we saw her at the beginning and then she she left. Uh, so the movie introduces this cool black guy that takes care of her camera feed and stalls Lives the camera. in a van. Yeah, he just hangs out of the van. Essentially, John C. O'Reilly can't trust her to do it on her own, so he's going to watch her every movement through the day to determine what her story is. This can't be legal, because she's carrying that camera the entire time, even when she goes to the Absolutely, bathroom. Absolutely. I'm going to have to look up when it was released, but um, Patriot the same... Act, the Patriot Act hadn't happened yet. <laughs> well, it was a pre-9-11 country we were dealing with here. <laughs> so innocent. <laughs> uh... Definitely, Jesus, it was two weeks before this. It was Ed TV, and I had very similar. Um, I, I could see the allusions to like that whole idea of, oh man, wouldn't it be crazy if someone's every move was fucking put on camera? You know, uh, we, I think we may have talked about this before on the podcast, but that 
and DV's movie that ages terribly because like then it was like man that'd be weird if like someone's real life was on TV <laughs> and now it looks tame yeah it's like oh this is fucking stupid like I'm sure you could show this to kids in high school now and they'd be like and I get it Matthew McConaughey never it, his entire feed and at TV has nothing on anybody anybody's Their Instagram YouTube channels yeah, yeah. Um, so now everything's being broadcast. So the cool, hip black gentleman in the van can see that she's about to partake in a weed brownie and he doesn't do anything to stop her. She just has herself a ball dancing. Uh, prior to the ingestion of marijuana, uh, where Sam is at the same club because of course he is. He <laughs> hangs out where the high schoolers <laughs> hangs out. Uh, the only real significance here of this scene is we meet his girlfriend from New York and that we find the writers of this film, uh, which were Abby Kahn and Mark Silverstein, clearly side on the uh, Windy City portion of the Civil War between Chicago and New York <laughs> as this uh, girlfriend character who's made out to be, I guess, the bad guy in the movie. <laughs> just, she has one scene. She has 30 seconds of just talking about how disgusting Chicago is and how much better it is in New York. Thank God we're in New York where people treat each other right. Pa Brownie goes crazy, dances, makes quite an impression on everybody, passes out at her kitchen counter, wakes up the next morning in a in a huff She's so into this high school character that she realizes she's late, despite the fact that she's 25 and <laughs> no longer in high school. Uh, before before you move on, though, you've you've very uh, conveniently skipped over one of the biggest plot holes in the movie, which I had to call out to you while we were watching it, which is that she's dancing like an idiot on stage uh, with the band, and everybody's laughing. Everybody is either dancing with her or just laughing at how she's dancing. And the black guy in the van, he's reacting like he can see her dance. But that's impossible because she, she has a camera on her boob. So all the black guy's seeing is people's reactions. Explain this to me, Mr. Raj Al Ghul. <laughs> how, did that, how did that make sense? I understand sacrificing logic a little bit for a joke, but in this case, one, it was not necessary. Two, that's a lot of logic to sacrifice. Yeah, man. I don't know. It was a different time. I think he was probably just so tickled by the fact that this camera was, you know, <laughs> What's moving? bouncing up <laughs> and down. Perhaps he had ingested some of the pot brownie himself. She makes it back to school the next day. Uh, she is chastised and teased some more. She goes into a bathroom stall, locks herself in there, and we get a flashback to her high school days. And man, yeah, she was treated very poorly. She, My note said, Jesus Christ, Josie had a rough go in high school. She was asked to prom by uh, the boy she had a crush on after she read him a poem that she wrote for him in English class. She gets ready to go to the prom, all that. She goes outside in her dress, waits for him. He drives by in a limo and just with another girl and then just eggs her and is like, right? Multiple about times. This dork. Like, horrible shit. Traumatizing shit. Hell of a downer in a comedy. Even I wasn't enjoying myself, but if I had been enjoying myself, I would have stopped right a second. <laughs> <laughs> so she is overwhelmed by remembering this, obviously, understandably so. I imagine that's a suppressed memory. So she takes off to run out of the school uh, when she runs into her brother, Rob, David Arquette, who has registered for school he re-enrolls there it's just it's that easy it was a pre-9-11 world man you could do a lot of things uh 
he registers for school. He's going to be on the baseball team because uh, one of the few moments of backstory we get of him is he was a good basketball player. She wants him to go to community college so he can play for the team there, potentially get to minor league, that type of thing. He views this as an easier and quicker road that'll help him out. And he explains, you know, I'm cool, so I'll help you fit in with the cool kids. And she has the line of, you can't just take over the school in a day. And then we, uh, amazing, just, she says that and then cuts to the cafeteria at lunchtime and the entire cafeteria is chanting, Rob, Rob, Rob. And then we cut to him. He's got this enormous, like, fucking barrel that you go over the side of Niagara Falls in of coleslaw that he's just eating the entire thing. And of course, uh, physical comedian David Arquette here, no one else really could have pulled this off. So it's, it's, Easily the movie's funniest moment, but it's also the movie's downfall because this is where it clicks to you that we really should be watching David Arquette's high school experience, not not Drew Barrymore. It's nowhere near as sad as Drew Barrymore. Right, Drew Barrymore is having a miserable time. Uh, it's just humiliation interspersed with flashback humiliation. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's just nonstop uh, misery and. I just want to hang out with uh, with David Arquette. Every time he came into the movie, every time we we cut to him doing something, uh, it was it was just joyful. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, he he illuminates any screen that he's on. Right, but he's not the lead of the movie, so by contrast, he's actually hurting the movie. David Arquette is like rattlesnake venom. Just a little bit, will do you. You know, you, you can't you can't ever do it. Otherwise, you get uh, uh, ready to rumble. Ready to rumble. <laughs> I've I've defeated my own argument. <laughs> is this is this around the point where uh, the movie decides that we need to have a completely unnecessary romantic subplot between Molly Shannon and John C. Riley? Uh, that starts from the get go. So Molly Shannon is, uh, you know, she I don't want to say the office slut because she, <laughs> but she she's, is, <laughs> but she's very open and she takes ownership of it. Well, okay, to so, almost an intimidating extent. I agree that the, the shit, but the movie makes it look like that's the wrong thing to do. The movie has this stance that what Drew Barrymore is doing is the right, the right way of living, which is, oh, don't go out, don't play the field at all. That way, you will be completely <laughs> unprepared when you meet somebody that you want to spend the rest of your life with. In, I mean, she says. That she has been kissed, she just hasn't been really kissed. What that means, I don't know. They, she never elaborates. She gives some bullshit about just magic and feeling like the world spins around you or whatever. But it doesn't say tongue, no tongue, how much groping, what's involved. <laughs> I don't know. But the thing is, Molly Shannon, at least, she knows the world. Yes. She can tell a red flag when, when there is one. Whereas Drew Barrymore can't, which is why she can't really... uh for some reason, she's blind to the obvious fact that Michael Vartan is a pedophile. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> okay. So, so this is the, and that's funny because I brought it up on Twitter about something else, uh, a few days ago, but this is the minority report argument, which is like, if we knew you were going to do it, but we stopped you from doing it, are you still guilty? <laughs> You know, the precogs, they saw the vision of Michael Varden going to bed with an underage student. They but she wasn't the underage. We've never seen him hit on anyone else. Well, that we know of. I mean, it's a brief period of time that's covered. I mean, movie. it's a lucky coincidence that she's 25. You know, <laughs> he, he's not sure what he's stepping up to bat with. Unlike David Arquette later in the movie, who really 
<laughs> only when his conscience comes into play. Right, but then at the same time, only one of them stops consciously, like actively makes a decision to stop and not make a bad, uh, an illegal <laughs> move, an immoral move, uh, and it's not Michael Barton. So Rob, being a new popular kid in school, tries to help Josie's image, just is telling anyone that will listen just random facts about her that are not true, something about uh, the yacht she spends time on and uh, guys she's dated, she dated the... Drummer, I think they name dropped the cherry poppin' daddies to really let you know what time frame it was in. Um, and then also he somehow builds in a story about how they dated, which is really weird. And then one of the guys is like, well, so are you, and he says, we're still friends. And one of the guys is, well, how good friends? We're friends, but how good friends? It just gets really weird because you know that he's talking about his sister. Yeah. Yeah. He's, and he's getting a little too much into character there. I have my note here. Jessica Alba is hot in a fashion that was only acceptable for two years. We get Molly Shannon there to flex her comedic bones because, as I mentioned to Julio, we're recording this. This was probably the height of her star power on SNL. She probably, in 99, it would have probably been like her, Sherry O'Terry, Chris Kattan, and Will Ferrell probably would have been the, the, the big names, the big gets. So we get a... A case of mistaken identity where Molly Shannon shows up and uh, is believed to be the woman there to teach kids sex ed. So, uh, you know, I mean, we've established a lot that this of school Molly Shannon jar- just riffing yeah. about condoms and sex. Yeah. And picking up bananas and viewing them in phallic manners. And uh, then we get Drew Barrymore explaining to one of the girls there about how, you know, your first time is very important and some analogy about penguins. I, about how you know you you pick one and that's the one you're set with for life. Yes, that is that is where Drew Barrymore, a 25 year old woman, that's where her head's at right now. That well, you know, whoever you hook up with, that's it. That's the one for the rest of your life. A very Charlotte York uh, mentality to have. It's a Sex in the City character. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like is that a dog breed? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were talking about penguins. Uh, and the entire time, Michael Varden is just doing the rounds. He's just—he's like a shark, just going. In he's watching with- all of the people apply condoms onto bananas and just biting his bottom lip. Uh, Josie, as we're reminded here, her uh, pin that she wears over her breast uh, is her video camera, and the stream of this and the videotapes that are coming from it are becoming a, a sellout at the curtain, as, uh, as the boys like to say, in that uh, all the people at the Sun-Times are just crowded around every day watching the latest development, seeing what's going to happen. By the end of it, they're taking bets on you know dating and what's going to happen, prom, all that shit. It's like John C. Riley suddenly forgot... That thing that was worrying him so much a few <laughs> a few scenes ago. Because the ante's been upped in that Gary Marshall wants the story in two weeks or he's going to fire Drew Barrymore and Gus, John C. Riley, uh, which is all the more disconcerting that Josie's still just treading water. She's just trying to bide time because she's finally fitting in with the popular kids. Prom's coming up. She's one of the cool people. Uh, Guy, the, the modern Billy, has asked her to prom. So everything's um, coming to be the way she wanted it to go the first go around. Then Gus kind of flips the script on her and he sees what's going on with Sam here. And he's like, we're going to blow the lid off this That's- teacher and student relationships. Thank you, John C. Riley, for injecting at least a little bit of believability in this script. 
if only for five minutes. A little bit of dignity. (laughs) I'm I'm glad somebody called this out because Molly Shannon was also there. And it's almost like she was rooting for this guy, for Michael Varden, uh, not acknowledging that, hey, he thinks that she's underage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and he sees kind of – he sees through it. Josie, 25, knows a bit more than these high school kids, but Gus has been on this planet even longer, and he knows the way men work, and he knows they're never going to get any better. So he sees the key to gold here with uh, Sam. Yeah, it's much like uh, Arquette – in in Drew Barrymore, and that you know the contrast Sam of how much Coulson. fun how much fun he is uh, is cool, but also damages the movie because by comparison, Drew Barrymore just seems like a drag. Mm-hmm. Here, having John C. Riley be so good at his job for one scene just makes him look like even more of an idiot the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> we have made it to prom night, as I mentioned. Josie will be going with Guy Rob. Who will be going to prom as John, uh, not John Travolta. Goddamn, always comes back to him. <laughs> Rob, who will be going to prom as Tom Cruise from Risky Business as the uh, prom theme that Josie chose because the school just instilled faith in her to do it. It was famous couples in history. Uh, but Rob, more concerning than anything, is courting a drunk 16-year-old to this uh, prom. And he's 23 at this point. It's established. Yeah, that's not that's not cool, man. That's, that's not cool, David Arquette. Why is it? What's wrong with this movie? Where is it that it's okay for Michael Varton to do it, and it's not okay for him to do it? You know, it's wrong in both instances. Yeah, David Arquette realizes it though. I think he sees that she's hot, but he's also just like the realization in his eyes when she's like falling over drunk, and he's just like. Uh, <laughs> I gotta go over here now. Yeah, he's a. Uh, it should have had the angel Arquette and devil Arquette <laughs> pop up on his, a la Animal House. You know, if Drew Barrymore, if Josie had been more ruthless the way that she's supposed to be, that's what she, that's what she would have gotten out of this jam. Instead of making the story about Michael Varden, she would have made the story about her brother. And just like throw him under the bus. This guy <laughs> infiltrated the school. He's not a journalist. He has no excuse to From be here. From the tiki hut to the big house. <laughs> <laughs> there is like this this undercurrent of just gross. Uh, I mean, I know it was 1999 and blah blah blah, but there is the running joke of grown men like full-on adults just going man she's hot uh you know because the the black dude in the van also does it the first time that he puts the camera on drew barrymore and it's just cut to the camera catching like three hot girls walking up the stairs or whatever and then the black dude is like man (laughs) and then uh when david arquette sees the 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 photo in the newspaper earlier in the movie from the the scoop from the tribune he's like got some underage hotties I was just like, okay, well, maybe you need to put a limit on how many pedophiles you have in your movie. You know, just have one. John C. Riley or someone. No, no, no. Yeah, it's the guy who rigs the camera work up. Says they didn't have him like that when I was in high school. <laughs> it's like, man, how would you even know? <laughs> Not aware of that stuff when you're in the moment. <laughs> Prom king goes to Guy. Prom queen goes to Josie. And everything's lined up the way she wanted it to until she has the the dance with her prom king and realizes that he's a fucking high school student and not emotionally deep and really not that intelligent. Yes. But all again, in the movie, the movie's just so uh, – it has such a blind spot for the characters that the movie's – likes versus the characters that are supposed to be in the wrong that it just it never addresses the fact that well 
Drew Barrymore is there dancing with this 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and she's 25. And, and the way it paints it is, oh, it's a problem for her because he's not mature enough mentally. <laughs> it's not about the fact that he's he wants to get physical and she's kind of leading him on. Um, They're dancing pretty close there. David Arquette does have that awesome line about when she's trying to give him shit for going to prom with the 16-year-old. And she's going with the 17-year-old. It's like, we'll catch you around the block, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Uh, teacher Colson is in the background watching this dance go down. Is this the part where he bites his bottom lip? This is totally the part where he he bites his bottom lip. Clearly fawning for Drew Barrymore for the Josie character. He's like, I will have my say. <laughs> so he goes and asks her to dance. Yes, they. That they... is fucking improper, dude. I don't know. Does that, does that happen, or did that did that used to happen? Yeah, teachers yeah. just get. Students on the dance floor? Yeah. For a slow song? Yeah, but like... It's the golden days of America? It would have been... My experience with it, it was more lighthearted and didn't... It wouldn't originate from a place of like... <laughs> Lust. Yes. <laughs> hey, we're crowded around the cake here, and I just want to tell you how beautiful you look. It would just be more of like, hey, be like dancing with your aunt or something like that. Right. The yeah. the, the raw sexual chemistry between Michael Barton and Drew Barrymore was not there. No. No. Did you ever dance with a teacher? Probably. Yeah. It wasn't memorable at all, apparently. No. I would have remembered. I did have some really hot teachers that I would have been too scared. I would have been like, hey. Michael Varden level? <laughs> uh, no. Molly Shannon level, maybe. <laughs> That's still, I mean, superstar. No, I always thought Molly Shannon was hot. Not as hot as Shara Terry. Even when I was, like, younger. Like, I've grown into that thing of thinking, like, you know, when you're younger, you're just like, oh, if a woman's older than 25, she's not hot. <laughs> Unless she's fucking Gina Davis. Uh, and then... But even when I was, like, uh, young, I remember thinking, like, Cheryl Terry was really hot, but it was really weird because she was funny. And you can't look at, like, comedic people in, like, a sexual manner. And then you grow up and realize, oh, that is – that's attractive. So, complete digression. Uh, Drew Barrymore, looking hot, looking fresh, looking 17, and Coulson wants every bit of that. It's it's, <laughs> it's taking her the entire movie, but she finally got into a place where I can buy that that – that she gets elected prom queen just based on her looks. Yes. Yay, movie. And this is the one part of the movie where she doesn't look like a high school student. Like, I buy her in every other section of the movie, but here she actually looks like a grown-up. Well, she... she Which I'm sure would be Sam's excuse, too. <laughs> she takes the girls out to play for prom. I mean, the entire time she's been wearing just these oh, sweaters and whatever. Yeah, but... she's wearing that very... <laughs> She's a very buxom wench, they would say in the yeah, Shakespearean language. The Gellers, they, they don't play around when it comes to prom. Arquette's <laughs> not wearing any pants and Drew Barrymore. She's just, she's got her boobies hanging out. So Sam goes to dance with Josie. The, again, unbridled, raw sexual energies there. He explains doing her some favors to help her get into Dartmouth or some fucking school, even though she didn't ask him to and that she says she's not going to go to college. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. It's not his first rodeo. This is his go-to move. <laughs> I'll help you get in college. And then conveniently, he just broke up with his girlfriend two days ago. Yes. And uh that's right. And everyone's watching this and they're like, oh, here we go. We get an awesome comedic shot of John C. Riley watching and then just gritting his teeth in excitement as to what's about to unfold. He does the emoji of the, the, the old teeth emoji. <laughs> That's his face. Uh, Josie prepares to come clean. She shuts off the camera as she, you know, wants to do this truthfully and honestly. Uh, before she does, though, she sees the popular kids are about to pull a prank, a very Carrie-esque prank on Aldous and uh, Lily. 
and dump a can of dog food. Yeah, because they call her Alpo, right? Is that, is yeah. that like the thing they call yep. her? But uh, yeah, so in the middle of the of the party, Lily Sobieski and her her team of uh, what are they called? The the Terminators, the denominators. Denominators. Yeah, they they all show up. Dressed, dressed like it, like they didn't really get what the theme was, which we know they're too smart for that. So they're just on purpose. They're actively trying to be outcasts. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's, I understand that you're not popular, but, but you're not even trying now. They show up and they're dressed as, uh, DNA. It's just like jumpsuits. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, we get it. You're smart, but you're not ingratiating yourself to anyone here. <laughs> Uh, I'm not saying they deserve to be uh, picked on, but at the same time, it's it's just you, you got to meet halfway. Yeah, right. There is so many famous couples they could have gone as. I can't think of any examples. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was '99. Vincent and Mia. There you go. Nobody there was Travolta and Emma Thurman, and that seems like a wasted opportunity. That's true. We did see uh, there was one. Um... What was James Franco? Oh, I didn't catch that, but I did see one of the couples in the background was. Um, Danny Zuko and Sandy. Oh, you can only have one Travolta thing. <laughs> there you go. You should do a prom that's themed just Travolta couples. Oh God! Then you get you and your three your boys to do the wild hogs. <laughs> so Josie breaks off this prank. She causes the dog food to spill all over Jessica Alba and the other hot girls. Goes off, cuts a promo on everybody about however mean everyone is. She comes clean, says, I'm a 25-year-old reporter that I came here to go undercover and do this story. Just completely blows everything out of the water. Uh, outs Rob, who uh, David Arquette just kind of tries to blend into the background and not stand out. The fact that he was outed as a 23-year-old. And uh, most of all, this upsets Sam as he spills out into the the foyer or the the, the courtyard. Fucking nerve of this guy! This is just but this is a two moment. Is a two beat failure. The first one is that in the middle of a uh, uh, Drew Barrymore's big speech, he just slowly glides away. Right? Where how really... close are we to the door? <laughs> well, a braver director. He would have just given us a close up of his face because that's really what we want to see was the face of a guy who <laughs> thought that he was about to hook up with a, with a, an underage student and suddenly realizes that not only is she 25, but she's a reporter. He just does the intense brow wipe. Whoo. But then he, so he's just hanging out. A, I mean, unrealistic as I would have just gone home, but instead he's just hanging out outside. Just reflected <laughs> on the, the evening's events. <laughs> So he's hanging out outside, and uh, he overhears the the black dude from the van. He comes out to check. Finally, after like what twenty minutes, he comes out to check what happened to the feed, mm-hmm. and he is talking to Drew Barrymore. And he, I guess, makes it very clear that she was there to make to get a story on the pedophile teacher. <laughs> and <laughs> Michael Varden gets up, and he has the nerve of being hurt and offended by this. <laughs> As if it wasn't true. So she just explains to him, you know, uh, these things I feel for you are okay now. And he says, oh, it's okay that I was attracted to you. She's like, oh, you were attracted to me? And it's a very awkward situation. He just kind of does the, puts his hand out and, no, you stay away from me. And he takes off. He wants to take off before she has time to really think about it mm-hmm. and what it means <laughs> that he was attracted to her when he's, he thought that she was a high school girl. He can't let it linger. He, <laughs> unlike the cranberries, he, he's got to get out of there. Uh, we cut to Gus's office as he's like, we're fucked. You screwed me. 
It really could have used him with the tie un- untethered and like the half empty bottle of scotch on his desk and be like, what am I going to do now? His leaves rolled up. I gave up on my career for this. I gave up having a family to be here. And now you, you blew it. <laughs> Josie vows to save the story, though. She knows she can do it and ends up getting uh, in whatever section she's in the front page of it. And uh, essentially just writes the pitch for this movie. She's just reading the the synopsis. It's perfect, though. As Norm MacDonald always said, the perfect joke is where the punchline and the setup are exactly the same. So the, the punchline, the kicker to this movie is, is just repeating to you what you just watched. It's perfect. It's not, though, because for that to work, it has to be funny and entertaining the first time around. <laughs> it's really just Drew Barrymore writing a reminder of how much this movie sucked how how little sense it makes because her whole like wh- how what? bad high school is but it's not because she ends up writing this sort of love letter to everybody that was shitty to her when she's talking about when she talks about the guy about guy uh the guy that took her to prom is just talking about how like oh well he's the one the one that makes you wake up in the morning and go to school he was an asshole yeah i mean he was a teenager i didn't know any better but that doesn't mean that you need to idealize him for readers everywhere yeah yeah she said he made going to school worth it which i mean but for a fraction of a second he was going to be part of that prank where lily sobieski was going to end up oh yeah, yeah. Covered he was an in so knock on the high school security though for her first day like the fucking hell in creation she had to go over to get through the doors that dude just could carry a fucking sword into prom and they they didn't say a boo about it i think uh we need to tighten up those restrictions babe uh so I like swords don't kill people <laughs> jesus you know it would kill a bad guy with a sword a good guy with a sword a good guy with two swords Fuck off. So Josie recaps the movie, and then we get into the, some would call it psychotic, I call it charming portion of it, where she writes out to the uh, Coulson, she says, and there's one person I hurt most of all, and I think I love you. And if you feel the way I do about you, you feel about me, meet me on the baseball field at this time for my first kiss. I'll be on the pitcher's mound. So I, I don't deny that this is, a newspaper-worthy story. Crazy woman <laughs> entraps pedophile teacher. Somehow they live happily ever after. But but the way that the movie is pitching it is like this is a happy ending to a big romance. And everybody's on board. Yeah. Up to uh, Gary... I was going to say Gary Chandler. Now, what's his fucking... Gary last? Marshall. Gary Marshall. <laughs> Gary Marshall shows up with hot dogs because uh, this is taking place at the stadium, yeah. right? the baseball stadium. So he shows up with with sodas and hot dogs and everybody on staff. Who's working at the at the Chicago Sun-Times at this point? Because all... Everybody... <laughs> the presses have been stopped. <laughs> right. Stop the presses until we figure out if this guy is going to show up to, uh, to kiss Drew Barrymore. The cops should be waiting for him. Was <laughs> What's that show where uh, to catch a predator? Yes, there you go. That guy should be there. I was gonna say that would appeal or apply rather more to uh, David Arquette, but I, I got some uh, admiration for Colson here because I'm always usually late, and so he, you know, he waits until the eleventh hour and shows up even after the uh, allotted time, after the uh, mentioned time in the paper, and but he still storms the mound, but instead of throwing fists. He throws lips and love <laughs> at Drew Barrymore. Uh, and then, you know, everyone claps, everyone kisses. We get our uh, Molly Shannon and uh, John C. Riley embrace, which is, you know, the age three, appropriate. The $3.99 I paid to rent this was paid for right there. 
um, guy from that thing you do gets a kiss too from somebody. It's true. The other, the other sort of extra in the in the Chicago Sun Times, and there's another kiss. Um, is it the black guy and his it's girlfriend? Gary Marshall and James Franco? <laughs> now that now that's a scoop. Uh, Jessica Alba sucks face with some dude. Oh yeah, the, uh, the dude from the Aerosmith video. Um, <laughs> James Franco tries to kiss my the, heart. Other, uh, the other hot girl. Yes, and, and she, but she hits him. With yeah, her. which is in a movie that's just full of nonsense. That was the craziest thing that James Franco doesn't get a kiss <laughs> when everybody is kissing everybody, even uh, John C. Riley. Yeah, and then we find out that um, David uh, Arquette has been named the assistant coach for the the team. So things worked out for him. He filled out the prerequisite of liking them young. Yes. He he did get uh, his monologue about the only time he fits like, or he feels like he belongs is when he's on a team. So he was fortunate enough to become the assistant coach on the baseball team. And, uh, yeah, everyone just kind of let that slide, that whole 16 year old thing. <laughs> that's okay. That's another thing. That's another big plot hole. How is it that this team makes it to the finals? Cause that's the game, right? Mm-hmm. She, she uses her contacts to make this happen at where the team from her school is at the finals. That team should have been disqualified yeah, the I, moment that, that Arquette was revealed to be a 23 year old. It's funny you said that. Cause in the IMDb trivia, there was something about like, there's actually precedent for a case like that. Like something like that really happened at a school one time. I, I, blanking on it now listen possible is not probable but they screenwriting 101 i don't care if it happened in real life you have to make me believe that it happened on the screen they also you know the best part would be if he's the coach and then they cut to like their season they're like oh and 47 (laughs) there's he's only good when he's having sex with 16 year olds (laughs) when he's got something to strive for (laughs) so that was never been kissed that was that was a drew barry vehicle the canceled sequel has been kissed. <laughs> Always been kissed is the Demolish Shannon story. <laughs> uh, and then just to take us out and leave us our hearts filled with light joy, we get high school pictures of everyone in the movie. Oh, I thought you were going to name drop the credit song, the end credit song, which I didn't recognize. Oh, I don't know. It. I just I thought that was cool. They showed a bunch of high school pictures of all the actors and people involved in the film there to take us out. John C. Riley looks exactly the oh, same. Oh, dude. Yeah. He was that guy that was buying beer for everybody <laughs> since they were 12. When he was, yeah, fucking sophomore in high school, they would just offer, they would give him the wine menu when he went out to eat places. <laughs> and then Gary Marshall looks like every person that grew up in the fucking 40s. <laughs> he has the, the farmer's hat and the, and the trident, the pitchfork. Yeah. And the, <laughs> like, there was just the one picture they had of him for like 15 years. <laughs> the big fucking smoke cloud and flashbang. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. If you want to know how we really feel, <laughs> stick around for real talk. You're not Josie Grozy anymore. Don't you know how much I just wanted to be you in high school? Just for one day to know what it was like to be popular. It's not that hard, Josie. All you need is the right person. One person to think you're cool and you're in. Everyone else will be too scared to question it. Is that true? Yeah, it's a little known fact. Don't you want to show them Gus, Billy Prince, yourself? Don't you want to show them that the cool kids don't freak you out anymore? That you can go in there and you can be friends with them and you can get your story? Desperately. Plus, if you quit now, then you're no better than me. Better than I. That's a spirit. Mm-hmm. So let's hear it. Come on. <laughs>
I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. That's it. No, scream it. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right, we are recording real talk for Never Been Kissed. All right. So first and foremost, I didn't have this pulled up when we were talking, but uh, it has been pointed out that Rob's team should have been disqualified from the state tournament when it was revealed that he was not a legitimate student there. However, something similar happened in California's girls basketball state tournament just before a sectional final. It was discovered that one team had a player who was ineligible, but the decision was made to let them play anyway, although the opponent was declared the winner by forfeit. So... Technically speaking, yes, but I believe in that it just comes up to the judgment of the overseeing body. So they played just because, you know, everybody's already here. Let's just play. But you're not going to win no matter what. Yeah. Eh, well, you know, that's still <laughs> the movie should have mentioned that all these journalists, <laughs> you know, somebody, the guy from that thing you do goes, hey, how are you going to make this work? Because your team is not going to go to the finals. Your brother just fucked them up. Yeah, for all the cutthroat journalism that's uh, portrayed or uh, implied, inferred, whatever in this movie. Yeah, they really kind of just drop it all at the end. They're like, <laughs> yeah. eh. They should have, you know, like that guy brings that up and then there's it, silence. Everybody's thinking. And then Gary Marshall from the end of the room is like, actually, <laughs> according to Roe versus Wade. <laughs> or, yeah, or... He says that everyone's quiet, then Gary Marshall just takes out a gun and shoots that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Any more questions? (laughs) All right. Never been kissed. 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. Released, as I mentioned, April 9th, 1999. Budget of $25 million. Box office return of $84 million. A little over. Now, that kind of surprised me because I feel like this movie is kind of one of those highly heralded turn of the millennium comedies but again i think that could just be our generation our age range it's really celebrated amongst our peers it's probably grown in popularity as the years went by that's not including dvd revenue or amazon rentals (laughs) so uh in contrarian's corner we kind of went over some of the reviews we had a mixed smattering so it's, continuing it's, on that. Uh, another smattering. Uh, this time, like I said, we'll start with the rotten and then alternate. So Ian Mangani from, it just says UK critic. Uh, he says, it's hard to suppress the beauty and charm of Drew Barrymore, but in allowing her to play an airheaded defective, never being kissed manages to do this. Defective? defective. Must be a British thing. Yeah. Otherwise, this is just, just wrong. Is that invalid? Maybe. I don't know. Jonathan Foreman from the New York Post says effortlessly convincing as a smart, klutzy, merely Monroeishly vulnerable, but prematurely spinterish romantic, Barrymore displays here a comic talent equal to Goldie Hawn's or Meg Ryan's at their best. Wow. Do you agree without going like too far into how you feel about Drew Barrymore in this movie? This is not Drew at her to me I know a lot of people view this as her zenith of charming leading lady but I, I've, I've seen other stuff I like her in. this is not her Saturday Night Fever <laughs> so it's not even Drew Barrymore at her best therefore she is not Goldie Hawn or Meg Ryan <laughs> Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle says Drew Barrymore movies have an advantage that others don't they have Drew Barrymore in them but that doesn't take away from the fact that she makes more lousy pictures than any other good actress ooh Mick what's his name Mick LaSalle Mick. 
The year is 2019. I would like to introduce you to Kate Hudson. <laughs> Even relevant to our recent exploits. Um, Peter Rayner from New York Magazine slash Vulture. There isn't a movie actress I get a bigger kick out of watching right now than Drew Barrymore. Yeah, she would have been the it girl. Peter Rayner had a big old crush on Drew Barrymore. She followed this up with the seminal film, Charlie's Angels. but that's yeah, She was there. building up to When was Ever After? That's a Cinderella movie I was thinking of earlier. Yeah, I, I want to guess. I'll say 2001 is my guess. Yeah. Uh, Edward Johnson Ott from Nouveau News 98. Weekly. 98, Ever yeah. After? Wow. So before this. Uh, yep. Edward Johnson Ott from Nouveau News Weekly says the movie makes virtually every mistake in the book, including flagrantly violating the moral of their own story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's no looking other. You can't read it any other way. No. Yeah. I always forget she was in Batman Forever. Barely. <laughs> uh, and finally, Frederick and Marianne Broussat from Spirituality and Practice. The heart-affecting finale of Never Being Kissed turns the sports shrine of the pitcher's mound into a shrine for love. Okay. <laughs> but love between who? Between what? All right. So, as previously mentioned, directed by Raja Gosnell. And again, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name. This would definitely be the best movie he's directed. What uh, else does he have? Uh, I will be the judge of that. Big Alex. Mama's House. Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2. Uh, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. Both Smurfs movies. <laughs> Show Dogs. I mean, he has. So, uh, l- this stands out as not being part of the shit. <laughs> the animal, the talking animal series. <laughs> to be fair, the first Scooby Doo, I, I find uh, there are things to enjoy about it. Jessica Alba could have played Daphne. Fuck no. Then Linda Cardellini wouldn't have been in it. No, not Daphne. I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 you're right. No, yeah, you're Daphne, right. I'm Daphne sorry. is yeah. the, the blonde one. Yeah. Or redhead. Fuck no. Then Sarah Michelle Geller wouldn't have been in it. <laughs> she had her shot. She was Buffy. Eh, I guess, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beer holder. So I can't really say that it's definitively his best. But I would say it's definitely the movie he made that was most reaching. I mean, it's the one that I would go out of my way to watch. Yeah, it's the only one of these I would watch again. Or at all. No. Like I said, I like the first. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. If I ever got super high and really just wanted to pass the time, I could see myself watching Scooby-Doo again. Whatever the case, uh, was given quite a hefty cast here. But again, at the time, the big names obviously drew David Arquette, who is still on Scream fame, and Molly Shannon from SNL Notoriety. But also in here, a lot of names that would become... Uh, Jessica Alba, um, John C. John Riley, C. Riley, right? I mean, this is yeah. This would have been after Boogie Nights, so oh, is it after Boogie Nights? What ninety seven, ninety eight? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, I, I think that I guess what strikes me uh, the, the weird thing Franco. is <laughs> the weird thing is seeing John C. Riley in a comedy where he's kind of the straight man, right? This is before he's the constant, right? Before Talladega Nights was that the first time that he went all. All wacky. He's funny in Boogie, Boogie Nights. Nights. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's more. You see, Star Wars people say they look like Han Solo. Everybody, everybody in, you know, they're naked. Half that movie, it's it's funny. Everybody's funny. You can't really tell if it's because. So your question is: the first movie he did that was just like wacky comedy would have been 
He's in the perfect storm. <laughs> Barrel of laughs. <laughs> God damn, he made a shit ton of movies between 99 and 2005. Yeah, Talladega Nights, because then Walk Hard came out in 07. Talladega Nights was 06, which Walk Hard is a movie deserving of its own documentary. So, Never Been Kissed. I had not seen this in several years. I had seen it previously, but, uh, man, it's, it's fucking sad. My sister walked in while we were watching it. She's like, okay, I'm going to leave the room because this movie's sad. Is it intentionally sad? I think that's the question. I think it covers a topic that, uh, and that being high school, and I know a lot of people live their life with the desire to do that part of their life over again, and I have zero. Like, uh, I got through high school pretty unscathed. Like, junior high and middle school was fucking awful. Because that, that whole period of transition is like, that's the worst time in any human's life ever. As your body's changing? Body, mind, you don't know what's going on. Like, all that's terrible. Um, the emotional aspect of it and everything. But I, I got through high school in junior, in junior high and middle school. I was bullied and kind of made fun of because kids are just awful, especially at that age. But, like, in high school... My freshman year, I went to a big high school when we lived in Ohio. And so I went to a high school that was big and very clicky and shit. And then when I moved here, went to an alternative learning center, which was basically for burnouts, pregnant students and stuff like that. It was for the school district to keep their dropout rate up. Was this your first pregnancy? (laughs) Yeah. This was uh, when... This was a little Josh. When me and... uh, Jennifer Garner entered into a verbal contract of where she was going to get my baby. (laughs) But it just appealed to me more with self-based curriculum and all that shit. I say all that to say I didn't get the cliche high school experience and I probably wouldn't have done well with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of being super popular or being super outcast. Yeah. And – but even still, that being said, I have no desire to revisit that part of my life. But like – with Drew Barrymore's, it's fucking dark and sad, but people live through that and it fucking haunts them their whole life, like getting made fun of. Or, I mean, this is obviously a movie, so it turns it up to 11. So I can't vouch for the amount of people that were egged on prom night after thinking they were going with their crush. Right. But, but see, I think that it, it does happen. It's just, it, it's not, it doesn't happen in the really like cartoonish, over the top way that it, you know, I, I really meant it. Uh, in Contrarian's Corner when I said that the way that Drew Barrymore plays a loser, you know, in quotation marks uh, here, it almost feels like she's making fun <laughs> of kids that are like that because she's just so over the top. And I like Drew Barrymore. And overall, I like the movie. I mean, I had a good time and I can, I can understand that there's, it's the kind of movie that doesn't have time for the subtleties of the high no. school experience. <laughs> you know, it's more like, oh, well, she's bullied. So she's going to be really bullied. And, but I think that in doing that, it kind of does the service to people to people that are actually bullied that way. You know, I'm sure there are kids walking around that get picked on that badly, except that there's nothing funny about that. Mm-hmm. And the movie here paints it as like, oh, well, it's kind of funny. In One in counter argument and not to downplay what you're saying, because it's absolutely true. One, we were allowed to be more lighthearted 20 years ago in movies. Right. And then two. Obviously, especially back then, too, that casts a much wider net. People back then wouldn't have really cared about, you know, the minutia of it all. But um, but I remember even the first time I watched it. I watched this in theaters when it came out. I think it was like my mom's, you know, turn to pick. So 
we went all to watch sort of like what looked like a chick flick. And uh, I remember those flashbacks being just unsettling. Yeah. You know, they're just like really nasty. Like the, the, like you said, the people are like really, really mean to her. So uh, even back then, and I was, well, I wasn't in high school anymore, but still, you know, it was, I was at an age where you would think I would have related. I mean, I think my high school experience is similar to yours in the sense that I was not super popular or picked on it was just kind of like i was right there in the middle was, just kind of rode the wave yeah and I mean, it was, I was over and it was like i am out of here <laughs> yeah doesn't like, i have no desire to revisit but not because i was miserable just because i was like all right i moved on and it was life was actually a lot more interesting after i got out of there but i don't know it, it's just re-watching it now that was the thing i remembered the most even more so than the fact that michael varden is an adult that's crushing hard on somebody who thinks is who he thinks is underage uh what i remember the most was just that uh that it was that there's flashbacks to just some really really dark stuff in in this movie yeah and uh but at the same time the fact that it's being played sort of for laughs it's that was something i didn't remember very well and here i i didn't care for it i think that you could have had a, a a movie that was darker and still funny, like just that black comedy that's just, you know. But then I don't know that that's a Drew Barrymore movie anymore. No, no, that's uh, there's a Linda Cardellini version, maybe. Yeah, uh, but, I mean, that's to some extent freaks and geeks, right? Like, yeah, that's also part of why it didn't really succeed because America has no time for it. Yeah. That was the show was like on NBC. It was like a mainstream channel here in America. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it all stayed within the the Barrymore wheelhouse of uh, goofy, kind of over the top in some aspects, but then still really charming and uh, somewhat relatable. It, you know, a a deeper movie, and that's that's the point. I'm not faulting this because this movie wasn't meant to be deep, but a deeper movie would tackle the issues of like why she wants to do it again if she's trying to get it right and then that whole thing about david arquette being like that whole thing of you know high school was their glory days Uh uh-huh uh-huh to quote the bruce springsteen song which again something i cannot even comprehend but that's that's not my life so those are interesting uh topics there but this was meant to just be of the american pie generation it was meant to be like that american pie that the whole family can go see like a a high school movie with some high school type comedy in it but you can you know the parents can find something to relate to it was clearly meant to be a family movie uh i think that more i find that more than like a date movie i guess there's the romantic aspect but that really only kicks in kind of at the end and I mean, and then, no, but like, you can if you're feel a teacher it. and you took your student to see it, you'd feel really weird at the end. Why would you be taking that's, your That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Varden didn't even see the working cut. He was just at the premiere watching this. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought John C. Riley was the bad guy. <laughs> so I think that we we do not fault it for not being as deep or complex as it could have no. been, but I will fault it a hundred percent for that love story. And I understand. I mean, nobody cares. And even I, as I am watching it, I'm like, I'm glad she's happy. I'm glad she got the kiss and whatever. But the moment We've done you something stop, else on here that's like a celebrated movie. I'm trying to remember that. Like the love story is very off putting when you stop and think about it. Oh, big. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but Big at least doesn't end with uh, with Elizabeth Perkins making out with a teenager, you know, or whatever. It kind of sort of acknowledges the, that this was troublesome. But but here, 
she it's just celebrate it you know it, it just counts on you not stopping to think about it for a second and that's why it's so cool i i do mean what i said in contrarian's corner that that scene where john c Riley says this is the story mm-hmm. that scene is great yeah. because he's right yeah <laughs> and it's a shame that he doesn't follow through because uh Again, that would be a much more interesting, much more complex story. But that's that is the seed of something. It's not the movie they told, right? But in the end, it, story they told. Yeah, I just wish there was a line, a moment for Michael Vartan to kind of redeem himself and just tell her, "It's like I was really fucked up for a few weeks because you were, you know." And he could at least try to justify it somehow, you know, and say you really were too mature for a. 16, 17 year old, and that was really messing with my head, and I'm just so relieved. Or whatever. but no, instead, what he does is he gets mad, <laughs> which makes him makes him look like even more of a creep. Classic asshole behavior. <laughs> it's your you fault. do something wrong, and then you convince the girl that it's something she did wrong. Yeah. Do you do you like Michael Vartan? I mean, this is the only I, thing you've ever seen yeah. him in. But I mean, did you like him in this movie? Other than the moral quandaries. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, he's fine. He's just very. Bland, yeah, is a very vanilla, straight white guy actor. The most vanilla potential pedophile you could have had, could have had on screen. <laughs> Besides Patrick Wilson, he's charming <laughs> though. Could have uh, had, can you imagine uh, Michael Fassbender as a teacher? Oh God! Just I was like, gonna make a joke during the first portion of this that the uh, the European version of this was called Fish Tank. <laughs> Never been fished. Oh God, man, like. We've talked about Fish Tank on here. Yeah, it was one yeah, of your plugs one it. time. Yeah, that's one of those that Fassbender's such a great actor, but his range is so Disturbing. wide. <laughs> like watching that, I was like, "Oh God, <laughs> Magneto!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, sometimes I, I really enjoy watching movies like this. Sometimes you just need to. It's so hard for me to do now. We've been doing this podcast for almost five years of like, you need movies like this. Things you can just don't overthink it. Just kind of accept it for what it is right. type thing. But yeah, it got that emotional response from your sister. Yeah. Which, uh, I mean, it's surprising. Truth be told, I- also something we have to take into consideration. I don't know what it's like to live like a woman and you don't either. Yeah. So like things like that can resonate with you differently. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, I remembered. There's two things that I remembered from about this movie. One was that, uh, you know, the flashbacks and how, like, rough they were and all that stuff. The other was uh, my father laughing his ass off. He'd been silent the entire movie. And then the champ, David Arquette, enrolls in school and he in the scene with him eating the coleslaw. And my dad just <laughs> laughed so hard. And I was like, wow, the movie got him. <laughs> that <laughs> it scene took a is while, funny, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really think that it goes to the next level once David Arquette becomes part of the of the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's great. I think that he's yeah. probably the, the MVP here. I mean, it's Drew Barrymore's movie, but... He's... And Molly Shannon's good. And everyone's fine in their role. Jessica Alba's hot. Uh, Jessica Alba's having so much fun. Once you, because what happened was you recognized. The worst her, thing that it, happened to that girl was people expecting her to be a good actress. <laughs> well, that's so mean. She is fine. She's just no Meryl Streep, or she hasn't been given the chance, maybe. I didn't mean that as an insult. I meant, like, <laughs> people's expectations of her were higher than what they should have been. Uh, 
too early because you, you never know what she could have like blossomed into if she was just like on but, a gradual train. But you don't know that maybe, you know, she just needs a Cameron Crow and an almost it's famous. True. And then, you know, she needs not Fantastic Four. <laughs> uh, yeah, she like I'm you get the feeling just watching this. that They're just like, hey, dude, just this is this is what we want you to act like. Right. And then she she nails it. I think that her instincts because uh, I can't imagine the director actually going in and, you know, on every take he goes and just painstakingly micromanages the performance of these three girls. <laughs> this is where you lift this your This is arms. your motivation. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, okay, and this, it's, here, just react to this. Uh, so you're going to get the dog food, okay? And then you're going <laughs> to throw it up in the air. Yeah. Uh, she's really good. I, I didn't recognize her as first. You did. And I thought you were kidding. And then I realized that, no, that was Jessica Alba. And from the moment I saw her, then I started enjoying the movie more because now I was, instead of being some faceless, uh, blonde teenager, it was like, oh, it's Jessica Alba. And because I was paying more attention to her now, I could really see how much fun she was having and how, you know, she was really good in this bit part. What I love that I focused in so heavily on in a contrarian's corner, that hot girl fashion that was only acceptable for such a short period that her and those girls are dressed as is like, I'm trying to think of like another late 90s movie we've done. I just know by the time Loser came out in 2000, it was already gone. And then like uh, Scream 2 is a good example. If you look at the fashion in that movie, 97, not anything. So that window between 97 and 2000, this movement came in, these pastel colors, poofed up hair and like high skirts and shit. And then it was just there. And with Eve 6, went out the window when 2000 came along. I just love it. I, I I love time capsule movies like this that capture something in a very, very specific point in time. Yeah, all the background, the supporting characters are good in this. And Drew Barrymore is, you know, it was a fascinating time for her, too, because she's still this was kind of her foyer into uh, leading roles. Like there was um, ever after, like you said, there was this there was driving in cars with boys oh yeah yeah i haven't seen it but i remember home fries and wanting to see it because she was still through the early and mid 90s was transitioning and was still kind of a and featuring actress and i think maybe like for a while wedding singer was the last movie she did where she was like the damsel in distress until 50 first dates came back oh, yeah. came am sandler came back with 50 first dates they did that they did like how would you like ago. to be relevant again <laughs> jeez well, fuck that. In the year 2000 or 2001, she wasn't too far off from meeting a gentleman by the name of McGee and teaming up with Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu and making Charlie's Angels, which I will defend is legitimately having its place in the the medium of film. You defending a McGee movie is uh, something that's easily the best movie he's ever made. <laughs> We will talk about Terminator Salvation during our 100th episode uh, extravaganza okay. in the month of January. We can say – I'll save my anticipation until then. Uh, the only real negative or like boo, I would say, is like the soundtrack was not that good. And usually, you know how big of a sucker I am for 90s soundtracks and shit. And yeah. Can you remember any of the songs? No. Because I'm having trouble. <laughs> yeah. It, there was really nothing that stood out. 
Maybe 99 was just a shit year. Isn't that when I'm blue, da ba dee ba da ba da that came out? Oh, but dude, we do get the Madonna uh, like a song prayer. that just threw us for a loop trying to figure out the if, time frame. If, if the math added up. <laughs> if canonically this movie made sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, it does. Yeah. Because, so in her flashbacks, I think when she's getting ready for prom, you hear like, like a prayer. Yeah, 90 or 91. It's 89, according to Wikipedia. It was when the song came out. When the song came out. And uh, so if she's 25 in the year 1999, that means that she was uh, 16 in 1990. Okay. You know? So, yeah, she could be 16, get ready for prom, and like a prayer has been out for a year, and it's still on the radio. It adds up, mm. people. You can stop worrying about it. Uh, it makes sense. They They thought it through when they were writing Never Been Kissed. I wonder when the video came out. They were more concerned about getting the... The Cost timeline, Madonna. the timeline, right? Then getting the morality of the Michael Warren character <laughs> right. That yeah, I I want to say it was ninety or ninety one when the music video came out for it. I just because it cost Madonna her Pepsi endorsement. But that's the one where uh, with the priest, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and, like Black Jesus and stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, God bless. Fifty six percent. I can, I am perfectly content with using this as a example something to point to and say this is what rotten tomatoes means it means every other person said they liked it yeah it really boils down to how do you feel about drew barrymore if you if you don't like drew <laughs> that's barrymore, gonna heavily do... influence your enjoyment of this movie well yeah this it is the drew barrymore show mm-hmm. and and you if you're not impressed by her in general this is not gonna change your mind if you like drew barrymore you're gonna have a blast i like drew barrymore just in general, so fair running time, hour and forty seven minutes. Yeah. Can't say that it's a waste of time, anything like that. There yeah, there are issues of morality that people that don't view these through the lenses we do probably wouldn't even really care about or pick up on. Yeah. I mean you imagine you just definitely walk out. like twenty nineteen woke guys <laughs> would be really disturbed by this movie. Very confused. So is it okay or is it not okay? <laughs> If they remade it, it would have to be like in a nursing home where everyone says on the daily that they consent to everything. <laughs> no, if they remade it, it would be uh, the other way around. Actually, this probably this movie probably exists where it's a female teacher that is attracted to uh, uh, Dude, to a, a supposedly teenage boy. That's like I rewatched Twenty One Jump Street recently. It was on at one of the hotels I stayed at. It was on TV. That's probably, upon rewatch, one of the funniest things in that movie is Ellie Kemper's desire to have sex with Channing Tatum. <laughs> I didn't remember Ellie Kemper was the teacher. She's, like, their high school teacher, and she's just, like, is trying so hard to have sex with him throughout it. Okay, but that kind of movie, that, I mean, that comedy, that's the joke. Is Yeah. You know, it's not like Never Been Kissed, but it's it's earnest. You're supposed to be rooting for these that's two to get together. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. The 21 Jump Street's kind of similar to this, of, like, it's played for, like... The crescendo of romance when Jonah Hill kisses Brie Larson. It's like, bruh. (laughs) I forgot about that. I mean, I don't care for that movie, so you can't really blame me for not remembering the details. Channing Tatum's really good on it. It's another one that if they they could have easily trimmed 25 minutes off that movie. But no, thanks to Mr. Judd Apatow, leave everything in. (laughs) Leave everything in, Apatow. (laughs) That's how he has two two daughters. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> restraint <laughs> what's that uh, yeah a fine romantic 
don't think about it after it's over. Yeah. Kind of just enjoy your Drew Barrymore. Not my favorite Drew Barrymore. It's a fast food movie. Um, Get your fill. Move on. Where do you put it on the on the Drew Barrymore ranking? Shit. Tell know. me a movie, a Drew Barrymore movie that you like more than this. Wedding Singer. A Drew Barrymore movie that you like less than this. Um, Freddy Got Fingered. A real Drew Barrymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she's never really been in anything I detested. But yes, movies I like less than this. Donnie Darko. That's the wrong answer, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Donnie Darko. I'll accept it. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. That's like your opinion, man. <laughs> uh, I saw some T-shirt that was like, "If her favorite movie's Donnie Darko, she's just not for you, man," or something like that. <laughs> uh, score. I think I'm just like three stars, C plus, something like that. It's a Drew Barrymore movie. It's cute enough. It's a good movie to watch on a rainy day. All right, so that was Never Been Kissed, episode number 90 for 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. We will be going on a remake arc. We will be reviewing uh, originals that are in the fresh, fresh category. Yeah. And then their remakes that fall into the rotten. So we'll be going back and forth. They're going to do a, a horror sandwich on this one. So we'll be starting with Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, moving along to the French film The Untouchables, which was remade as The Upside, Upside. Yeah. in America. And then sandwiching our horror sandwich here, we'll have uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original from 1974, and then the Marcus Nispel remake from 2003. We're also aiming to have two bonus episodes for originals where uh, we already covered the remake, so we'll do uh, uh, the original Walter Mitty and the original Fly, both fresh. And then, you know, like we mentioned, Walter Mitty was middle ground mm -hmm. on the tomato meter, and the Fly remake was fresh, mm -hmm. but it's like an odd one. And then also the Devil's Advocate episode is happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's just we couldn't record it in time for it to be episode 90, uh, so it will ha we'll throw it in at some point. It'll be wedged in here somewhere. Yes. So, uh, winding down our plugs, as always, we have the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Opening is uh, Last Stand, closing summer 99, com for all your festive years needs. <laughs> Whatever they may be. Uh, I don't know if you saw, I posted on Facebook, a uh, friend of the show, Joe Ketchum, uh, he... He said that our outro was his favorite outro. Like he, yes, somebody I did posted see that. the question. It was just I had to tag Chris on that because he he needs the credit. He I, he deserves the credit rather. Goddamn right. Uh, also, our logo, Hans Rothgeiser yes. designed it, drew it, produced it. Uh, he does comics. He's a writer. He has a podcast called Nación Combi, where he talks about Peruvian going ons, mostly political. Uh, he also has another podcast. That one's in Nacion Combi is in Spanish. This other one is in English. It's called Living in Peru. Uh, you can find Nacion Combi everywhere. Uh, Living in Peru, you find it on iVox and it's about Peruvian, uh, well, people that move to Peru. So they're not proving immigrants. They're immigrants to Peru. Uh, he also, like I said, does comics. That's a website. Uh, you can contact them on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S, or email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com, or you can go to his webpage. It's Mildemonios.pe, P-E for Peru. Uh, so just contact them if you want comics, if you want to tell them that you love his podcast, all that good stuff. All right. Um, I watched a lot of movies. Over my travels, 
I've been traveling a lot. My whole month of August has been quite riddled with adventure. Uh, so we'll be parceling them out throughout our remake arc. Julio and I are going to be recording like crazy over the next few weeks. So plenty to discuss. Um, more to lament about. Play just bitch about <laughs> Venom for a while. Uh, but most topical and most relevant and prevalent uh, is the new Quentin Tarantino release, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which uh, I made sure to watch at the beginning of the month when it came out before I went on my vacations and whatnot. So, so I think this can be our, our uh, uh, like mutual plug. Mm-hmm. Sounds kinky, but... <laughs> Because, yeah, I watched it, too. This is the first time we mentioned it. Sounds like a docking show. scenario. <laughs> uh, I figure we just so they'll be more about it. We'll do spoilers. So Oh, if, yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, for one, you probably don't care that much because it's out yeah. everywhere by now, all over the world. But still, if you for some reason haven't seen it and you care about spoilers, then just you can skip to the end because from here until the end <laughs> of the show, it's just <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood talk. Yes. Uh, saw it in 35 millimeter, the Ritz Draft House. Uh, very disappointed to report they do no longer serve wings at the Ritz location. Or like, anywhere, right? Uh, it better be elsewhere, because my waiter told me it was just the Ritz location. Oh. I mean, that's... Because I thought they I'm had... going to be shoot had, hot if they don't have them at the fucking village or anything like that. I thought they had simplified their menu. Yeah. That was all across, but I don't know. I haven't been to the Alamo in forever. Any of them. Yeah. So, the whole time I, I was... I kept, I went into it like wanting to love it just off the bat, but then also like Tarantino movies fill me with so much conflicting emotion a lot of the time. I couldn't tell if I, for the majority of it, I couldn't tell if I was loving it or hating it. And then like, uh, just because of that, because like I go into it with this mixed bag of emotions to begin with. I love Brad Pitt, love Leonardo DiCaprio, any movies we've done with them. Or anytime they come up on this podcast, you can find I just am over the moon about those two guys. And then also, like, when it got into the final hour, like, my anxiety kept building and, like, my heart <laughs> kept kind of racing gradually because I was like, okay, how are they going to end this? And I kept thinking, like, I knew what they were going to do. And then, like, they completely blindsided me with the end because I, I, what I thought was going to happen was Brad and Leo were going to get killed by the Manson family. Okay. And so, like, and then so, like, when Brad went and got all fucked up on that LSD cigarette, and <laughs> but I loved it too because he had his dog trained to just go nuts on him. But and then they, the thing is, too, I remember I read saw it before me, and I was like, well, is it violent? He's like, not really. And then, <laughs> Until I, it is. yeah, and I watched it and I was like, yeah, it's right. And then there's like a five minute segment of it that's just pure, unadulterated gore, and uh, it's. There's not really a plot. It's just kind of like a series of happenings, which in a certain aspect, you could say that about a lot of Tarantino stuff. Yeah, I think that the movie can get away with that somewhat. Well, partly because, at least for some people, myself included, it it's fine. You know, the, the little bit of the plot that it has there... They're not like an overarching plot, but, you know, basically you can say that the Caprio story is just his day at this... TV show, mm-hmm. right? And the story of how he overcomes his anxiety goes out on a high note, at least on that day or whatever. And then Pitt's story is how he picks up this hitchhiker and has that whole adventure at the ranch and then yeah. escapes with his life. And But, I mean, even that, the movie takes us all at, what, 30 minutes before you even get to the beginning of those two stories? And then that ends and there's still, like, 
30 minutes of movie or more yeah. left. <laughs> and But I think that it gets away with it if you know about Sharon Tate and the Manson murders and all that stuff, which every time I hear somebody have like a negative response to the movie, that's the first thing I've been asking. I was like, well, did you know? Because if you know what happened to you and what happened to me is that, you know, you're anxious yeah. because you just know that this movie is going to end with the Manson murders. The moment that you see Sharon Tate and even then they, you see Manson for like five minutes and all that stuff. Then you, you know that Tarantino is building up to that. Yeah. And so, you don't care that there's no story because you know where you're headed anyway. And at least that's how it worked for me. Yeah, I didn't care or register it. the plot thing until really afterwards. Right. Because like the whole time I'm like, okay, I know where this ends. How are we going to get there? Yeah. It's like, or I think it was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't even think of that. There probably are people that are going in that don't even know who Sharon Tate is. And- or, or that they or they have a less a lesser attachment. And look, I'm not even, you know, what I know of Sharon Tate is mostly from the episode we did in this podcast from uh, Valerie Dolls, right? And that's how I know her as in I, I've seen her. I've seen one of her movies, so I have a pretty good picture of her and the talk we had about that. So I have a little bit of background of what her career was like. Mm. And then I knew about the murders and how horrific they had been. So I had all that built up. But if you just know that Sharon Tate was an actress that got murdered by Manson's flunkies, it it might not be enough to get you through the finish line yeah. emotionally. Where you're just like, I don't care. Or the other reaction I've seen is like where you think that this might be it might be an overreaction, that what happens at the end is not warranted. You know? Everybody's on board with uh with uh Brad Pitt's people with the bastards killing all the Nazis at the end of Glorious Bastards yeah. because well Everybody agrees that Hitler had it coming and all the Nazis had it coming. <laughs> but when you see it happening to these two girls and this guy and Brad Pitt goes to town on them, you know, and the dog, uh, I think, uh, you know, Dude. I was talking. I was yeah, when he's like the one girl just bouncing her head off like the pillar in the house. It's like, fuck. Right. It's like it's brutal. And I've seen people just react negatively to that. This is like here's like a man just beating up a young woman. Yeah, but it's the young woman that was going to stab a pregnant woman a whole bunch of times. So mm-hmm. to me, I had zero problems with that. You know, I had no problem with it. Uh, and I think most of the people, at least in my screening, were on the same wavelength. You know, they just seemed not just relieved, but elated by what was happening. Yeah. Uh, and it made me think instantly of Inglorious Bastards and how when, when you see that they actually got Hitler, you're just kind of like, you're confused, but you're also happy. Yeah. And, and in this case, it was just seeing that, okay, so he's changing history again, made it for... Uh, to where I didn't mind, you know, that it was just brutal. Uh, it, I think I was with him, I guess, on the moral side. You know, to me, they were not human beings; they were monsters. And so the fact that he just treated them like monsters and in such an over-the-top way—I mean, you know—everybody uh, in my screen cheered when the Caprio shows up with the the flamethrower. With flamethrower. Yeah. Uh, now. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm sure there are people that are cheering for the wrong reason. Maybe there are people that just go and get off on just violence. the violence without the context. And yeah. that's like, well, that's sad. But I I would give Tarantino the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> like, yeah. He didn't do it just for it to be violent. You know, I saw somebody else, like a review where they were talking about how uh, they felt that the violence in that final scene, the final act, was just Tarantino kind of feeling like, well, this is what people expect me to do, so I have to do it. Otherwise, it's just another Jackie Brown where there wasn't like the extra violence, the, the hyper violent finale, and so yeah. it's a flop. 
I was like, I, come on, he's clearly doing whatever he wants in his movies. I don't think Tarantino thinks about he's how given carte really- blanche by like studios to yeah. do what he wants. Yeah. Uh, the other big thing I know that was a lightning rod of controversy was uh, the scene that depicted Bruce Lee. Right. Because his daughter, I think it was, was offended by it. My immediate rebuttal is it's Brad Pitt's memory of, yep. the, of the story. So, yeah. like, of course, it's going to be silly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I, and just the choreography of the fight scene was so it fucking was, cool. It was awesome. I, I, I loved it. I, the thing that I, I didn't think about it until after the movie. And that's how much it had me that it made me forget about this was, uh, the flashback to where he's thinking about the allegations of him having killed his wife, mm-hmm. right? And he's just like sitting there with the harpoon, <laughs> and and you never see anything again. You never hear it be disproved or you know whatever. And so I've seen people have problems with that. But they're like, you know, it's heavily implied that Brad Pitt did kill his wife, and now you're cheering for him the entire movie. And I was like, maybe I don't know. I, I certainly wasn't thinking about it when I watched the movie. Yeah, I I, I mean, if you remove that scene, that that flashback or whatever him and on the boat i would have just taken it as just a rumor because that's hollywood and there's a lot of gossip and that's just like what people say and i don't think you know that that he actually uh killed his wife but then when you consider that they have that shot then it's a little muddier because i think that if tarantino really had wanted us to know for a fact that he didn't kill his wife he would have shown us something that 100% told you yeah but instead he's just fucking with you and he's giving you this thing where you know, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I've seen people say that the harpoon is not loaded. I haven't, I don't know, I didn't notice. Yeah, it's a three-hour movie I've seen one time. I haven't had the time to watch the, the, the Zapruder film cut of it. Um, yeah, but whether, even if it is, you know, the thing is that when it comes to it, I'm still on Brad Pitt's side when he's visiting the Manson Ranch and I'm, you know, fearing for his life there. Uh, it's Tarantino's shit, man. He's it, if you don't know at this point that he's going to throw in just some fucking roads that go nowhere, then <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Luke Perry it was cool to see him. The entire, you know, and this is something that I, I realize it's pot kettle situation of you know me always talking about shaving shit down. I've talked to people that said that the the shooting scene with Timothy Oliphant and Leo when they're shooting the show should have been trimmed down. I'm like, no, that's like one of the best sequences of the entire movie because it just shows the pit of despair mentally that Leo's going to to try (laughs) to pull this off. You need to build to that thing where, uh, I mean, if anything, what was bothering me in that scene, and I didn't care, you know, but it was in the back of my head was, this is not how you shoot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, they never stop to do it. Like, the way that it's depicted is as if it's all doing, like, it's all one single shot, which that doesn't match to how I think that definitely back in that time, I don't think that they were shooting that with Mm -hmm. the camera going around, just one shot and, uh, right? I mean, I was like, they're doing coverage and they're going back and forth, so it doesn't really matter if he flubs a line because... It's Tarantino shooting a Tarantino. (laughs) Right. Uh, But beyond that, I just like that, yeah, it kind of, like, builds the tension to where... When he fucks up, you're like, oh, God, he has to go again. Yeah. It was already... It's needed. Yeah. That's what we always talk about on here. If you can shave 25 minutes off of something and it still accomplishes the same thing, that's not the same. This movie needed that time to tell that story that it wanted to tell. Um, Margot Robbie is kind of the unsung hero. Uh, she kind of gets a thankless role in it, too, because 
from the jump, just like, oh, she's going to play Sharon Tate. So that's going to be weird. Like, that's the ideology going into it. And uh, I watched an interview with Tarantino where he talked about there was thought put to them refilming uh, or, or shooting, I should say, the scenes. Oh, the movie she's watching? Yeah. The Bond knockoff series where uh, uh, James Dean – or not James Dean. Dean Martin, excuse me, would play Matt Avery or some shit. Matt Band. Yeah, sure. Matt uh, Bone. <laughs> it was a Bond knockoff and she was a Bond girl in it. And so – but they thought about reshooting that and doing it with her so she would be watching her version of it. But he's like, no, I think it would be cool if we gave like Sharon her own moment in the sun to kind of – a new audience see her do that stuff and he was right it is cool <laughs> yeah it is it's uh it's it's so hard because with tarantino you're trying to find what the more like uh visceral context is behind it but it's like no this is just like a feel good innocent if you can describe something tarantino's done is that it was just a, a and not even a segue but it's like this necessary uh intersection in the movie and, uh, yeah, Brad Pitt, when he went to the ranch, uh, I saw Elena Dunham hit the screen and I was like, I gotta take a piss. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't get. Why, why do you dislike her? You haven't even seen girls. Oh, I've just. Uh, just her online presence? Is that uh, the. Uh, uh, I hate that terminology. <laughs> uh, just the interviews I've read with I, I her. I didn't and call stuff. her an influencer. There so. you go. I was waiting for that next. <laughs> Uh, she she just I've read interviews enough with her to know she just completely rubs me the wrong way, which is fine. And you're not put on this planet to like every other single person. Uh, and I just I really just it time the timing of it worked out that way. And then the Bruce Dern cameo uh, was funny, and he just kept looking at Brad Pitt. <laughs> Who are you? Who? Yeah, Leo is incredible. You know, with two titans. Of not just like my lifetime, but of like the history of film with Leo and Brad. It's so funny. Like they're both so good in a sense. They, like it kind of cancel each other out in terms of memorable performances. I've always used that analogy for, uh, or that example for the social network with like, um, it seems like everyone's so good in that they cancel each other out. And you don't right. really walk away thinking about who's great in it. With this, I would imagine both of them would be likely to kind of be nominated for I everything under so. the sun when the yeah. award season comes up. Yeah. Uh, I really can't say enough good things about it. I did post my updated Tarantino rankings, which I know ruffled some feathers because I, I don't think Inglorious Bastards is as good as everyone else does. You just need to rewatch it, though. You haven't seen it in a while. Uh, Chaz in particular seemed quite uh, <laughs> asunder that I had <laughs> Django over Inglorious Bastards, and uh, but yeah, I I would put this below my favorite. Obviously, is Pulp Fiction, and then Jackie Brown, and I would put this as third if I was ranking Tarantino's movies. I liked it that much. Yeah, I think I have it at five, maybe, but that's because I like everything else, you know, just as much. The weak point for me. And this is just a very particular thing because I know uh, other people like this or at the very least didn't care. I just – I – the little girl, the the actress, the little girl that acts opposite him in the, in the Western, I just didn't – that performance was not working for me. I mean, she's fine. She's not a terrible – it's not a terrible performance, but 
she's surrounded by just like goliaths said, yeah exactly and so i just i didn't buy it she sounded and i hate that type of character to begin with the precautious child mm-hmm. i was just like the fucking Sha- uh shane black come in and do a rewrite of this <laughs> sequence i just i i don't care for it to begin with and then she was not it's very it's very difficult for a character like that to work for me. So you need to have a really really charismatic, really like on point performer. Just for me, again, it's like Lena Dunham and you. It's like who gives a shit if I'm pleased? You know, obviously yeah. work for everybody else. But personally, that's like the one thing that dips the movie a little bit because she's in there a lot, and there's even a big emotional moment for DiCaprio. Especially she's part in of it. the middle of the movie. Right. Yeah. And so to me, I was just like, can we just move on and not have the little girl again? But she was still there and it was, uh, I just, that didn't work for me. And our boy, Timothy Oliphant, bringing the bacon, man. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, Justified is not there anymore. They just canceled uh, that show he had with Drew Barrymore uh, on Netflix. Oh, okay. So, gotta, gotta get back to the movies. Well, he just did the Deadwood movie too. So. Yeah. I think one of the things I learned just personally going into this is, of course, doing this podcast has not helped this at all. But like the level of jaded, it's like when you get so excited for something, it's just best to just kind of let it happen and try as hard as you can to not go in there with any lenses on. Because like I said, it was like my anticipation for this and then just not I, I i don't i'm not one of those people that actively tries to find something to not like about it but i'm just so like i go into things like this with my guard up of just being like there's no way it can be as good as i think it's going to be <laughs> cuz even just like if you just say Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and then you don't add in Tarantino or like the subject matter right there i'm already just like mm. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> i was so pleased when it was over just how good it was and the you know, the, the thread of the Tarantino, I still pop for like the red apple cigarettes, like the, con- uh, the constants of his universe and Kurt Russell and his tiny little part was really funny. Yeah. Did you, how do you feel about, you know, in the third act, I had this really long discussion on Twitter uh, with a bunch of people, mostly Nick, cause he hates voiceover. Uh, not every voiceover, but most voiceovers and he hated the voiceover in that part. And I was like, to me, it works because. It feels like a not a newsreel, but kind of like an E through Hollywood story kind of thing, where you get that kind of narration that just tells you the facts and what what is supposed to have happened. Yeah, and because this was a lead up to a very uh, famous murder, I was like, okay, it makes sense that we're just setting the scene for that kind of stuff, you know. So I'll say this: uh, in it, in that moment, I was like, what the fuck? They haven't done this at any other point in the movie. Oh, they so- did a little bit at the beginning. Yeah, 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 but like it wasn't like a, a thematic reoccurrence, right? And so I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And like when it <laughs> happened, it was really starting to chat my ass. But then when the, mo- <laughs> when the movie was over, I didn't care because I was so happy with the way it ended. I was like, "I don't care." Like uh, the 120 seconds of me being like, "What the fuck?" W- was completely <laughs> outweighed by how much I enjoyed the rest of the movie. And I guess. If I could think in my mind why it was necessary was it was setting the table for like this visual buffet you were about to (laughs) partake in. I could see just from my reaction where that someone could get annoyed by that. I I don't mind voiceovers at all. To me, it just kind of came out of nowhere. But then in hindsight, like the montage and their just ridiculous outfits they were wearing and shit made it all worth it. Well, they were in uh, Italy. Yeah. 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 And, And 
to be fair, also, when I got past the, huh, it was, that's when my pulse started going up. Right, because it's recounting the things that you know yeah. are leading to. I'm like, fuck, what's going to happen? <laughs> I fucking love Leo coming out with a picture of margaritas. <laughs> Get the fuck off my street, <laughs> yelling at him. Um, Jake Cahill. So somehow the first time I watched it, somehow I missed the first the first time around that they, they end up not going into uh, Polanski's house because of DiCaprio. You know, like, he comes out, he bitches at them, and that makes them decide, well, we're going to go kill this guy instead. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, even the second time around, it, it's not, nobody says that, you know? It's just that, like, that's the thing. If you don't know that in history what happened was that they went to Polanski's house, you're like, okay, what was supposed to happen? You know, I don't no. think that the movie gives you, like, enough breadcrumbs. It shouldn't anyway, I guess. You know, Tarantino doesn't give a shit. He, he's like, well, you either know about this or you don't. Uh, but, like, in my mind... I, the first time I watched it, I wasn't sure which house they were entering at first until, like, you know, Brad Pitt's there. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I know where we are. And then, you know, the second time around, I was like, no, no, it's a little more clear. But still, it's just that, like I said, he just doesn't care at this point because he, he could have given you more background on what's supposed to happen, right? I mean, he even has a narration that, like I said, it didn't, it wouldn't have taken anything to for him to, like, tweak it a little bit and just make it, like... Oh, yeah, that's the the part of the Manson family in this that's excellent, just tremendous filmmaking and writing is it never once focuses on them. It's just these stories happenstantially intertwine with that. And so, like, I could see if I had zero knowledge of what I was watching being irked because I don't understand these people's motives and their whole outlook at the same time we're talking you know tying into this movie tough shit some movies are gonna be like never been kissed where it's just everything's very broad brush strokes and fed to you and like there's no way to you know get lost or confused and other movies are gonna be like this where the guy who makes it doesn't really give a shit about spoon feeding you everything you need to know and that's fine and that works for me because i know the subject matter like I'm sure there's movies that I could, if I thought hard enough about it, I could be like, well, I didn't know that and they didn't spoon feed this to me. So it kind of uh, hindered my enjoyment of it the first go around. But I'm fine with that. We need more of that. We don't need things to be beaten over the head with. I know. That's how you I, learn about shit. It used to bother me. You leave uh, and you go, well, what was that? And then you right. read about well, it. Well, but the movie has to be good enough for you to get to that point where you want to learn more. Yeah. And and I think this movie is. So I did love, and this happens every time a Tarantino movie comes out, the people that already have their mind made up about his entire filmography that still go out and see it and then just bitch about it incessantly. It, this is the first time I've noticed the, uh, or not that I've noticed, but that the, the shots of the feet like actually took me out of the movie. And not in that terrible way. I mean, I was still like in the movie, but I was like, Oh man, he does that do a lot because it always happened before that. I don't really think about it until after the fact and somebody mentions it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. The one that just from a perspective of I the like all time, like top five pet peeves, that shit that girl does where she puts her feet on the dashboard that (laughs) that 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 got me just because it made me so mad. If I was Brad Pitt, I would have said, get the fuck out. Like that drives me insane. No, excellent, excellent stuff. Um, At this point. Yeah, I'll see anything Tarantino makes. Well, he only has one movie left, allegedly. Oh, really? It says, and it might be a Star Trek movie. 
That's right. That's right. I read about that. But just generally speaking, I mean, his his presence is so profound in his movies. It's 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 great. And this movie is tremendous. It's outstanding. Can't say enough kind words about it. Go see it. See it again. I know I'm going to. What'd you give it? Like A plus. A plus. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. I think I have it at four and a half stars. Maybe still like you know to me it's good Tarantino. Yeah. Bad Tarantino is just very very. Uh, it's 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 not much of his filmography. I think I've, I'm no I mentioned it before. Kill Bill. <laughs> yes. Both volumes. Fuck him. Yes. No. Uh, no, Death Proof and uh, Hateful Eight are really the only movies that I have no inclination to ever watch again. But uh, I've never seen Hateful Eight. It's now a four-part miniseries on Netflix. Yeah, we'll see if I ever get around to it. <laughs> he heard about the Mattis rule, and then he found a loophole. It was like, if I break <laughs> it up. He it up. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I know that fucker likes Ozark, okay? So if I cut <laughs> this into four parts. <laughs> All right. So, that was our digression into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As you can tell, it gets the official contrarian seal of approval. Yeah, and it needed to Nine be Nine thumbs up. Given that our most popular, most downloaded episode is the Valley of the Dolls episode. <laughs> I did. There is a tie-in. Such a cute moment, too, where she's the... I was in Valley of the Dolls. I was the one who did the nudie movies. <laughs> or the dirty movies, or whatever she calls them. Good stuff. But that was Never Been Kissed. Uh, we do appreciate y'all, as always, for listening to us here on The Contrarians. Where we're right and you're wrong. And we will catch you next time. Begin our arc of the Hollywood remake. That summer of 't uh, oh, how I miss Travolta in the, he should have been playing <laughs> all the roads come back to Travolta oh God he should have that would have been a uh, super oh my oh. god you're 25 <laughs> so now it's okay I'm attracted to you. <laughs>